0: I want to give you some homework before we even get to the end. I know some of you, probably when you were in school, didn't like homework much, and so it's going to be tough for you. But I want to give you a little bit of homework for this week. So think about this and pay attention this week. I, I'm curious because I think I know what the outcome will be. I'm curious what you would find if you paid attention to the variety of conversations that you have or that go on around you. Curious what you would find in the way of people, terminology I would use, one-upping each other. Maybe you're a person who always has to have the last word, or maybe you're married to somebody who always has to have the last word. I don't know. Maybe you have a parent or a child who always has to have the last word in the conversation. And I'm not talking about in, in just arguments, and they're going to be right, and they're going to, you know, the argument's going to continue until they finally have the last word. I, that's not just what I'm talking about. But in regular conversation this week, you pay attention to what happens when a story is told or somebody describes what they've been going through. And you watch, whether it's you or someone else in the group of conversationalists, somebody will try to one up them. Oh, really? Well, let me tell you what happened to me. Well, I've got a story about that, too. Oh, you, you, you've you been in a hospital. Listen, let me tell you about what happened to me in the hospital. You, you, know, you know, now listen, don't elbow anybody. I always tell you that. Now, you get somebody in trouble this morning. But I know because I have those same tendencies that you're probably just as human as I am, and you probably have seen that play out in your life. You're going to try, or the people around you will try to expand upon your story, and some of that is just conversation, the way we talk with each other. But it's interesting to me, and always a little bit funny, to listen to those who seemingly have got something bigger and better and worse than anybody else in history has ever dealt with. You know those kinds of people? I I, I think that we have the tendency as humans to sort of believe that, that we are experiencing something that no one else ever has or certainly not to the degree that we're experiencing. We've had pain like no one else has ever experienced. We've had trouble like nobody else has ever gone through. We've had something happen to us that certainly nobody else would understand, but let me tell you about it. We probably have all been there. No one's pain, no one's tragedy, no one's situation has been quite like mine in human history. And we all have the tendency to believe that. But you watch the next time that you have a story like that come up. The next time that you are in that scenario of constantly one-upping the next person. Or having someone one-up you. (laughs) You watch what happens when two people have experienced the same thing. You talk about lights going off. Wow, this person gets it. You ever found like that? Even a total stranger. Somebody maybe you meet on an airplane or, or at Walmart. You just happen to get to talk and stand in line or wherever it is. The bank or wherever. And you find somebody who gets it. They've had the exact same thing, it seems, happen to them that's happened to you. They, They had all the stuff go wrong that you've had go wrong. They've had their children do the same exact thing that you've had your children do. Their parents may have died the same time your parents died and went through the same exact thing. They had the same major issue in college. They had the same exact professors at Murray State that you did. It drove you nuts. It's interesting to see the lights kind of come on when that happens. And those people can be total strangers and just talk back and forth and there's no one no more one up and they're just they're just now on the same page. I would venture to say that you probably enjoy talking to people who seem to get it. They seem to have been there. They seem to have experienced the same things you have more so than you enjoy talking to someone who doesn't really care what you're having to say, they just are waiting for their opportunity to say something that's even greater than what you just said. You know that in conversation. We're going to look at a guy this morning who I really believe gets it, who really understands all that we have been through, all that we will possibly go through, and even to the degree that we might experience it, we'll see a guy this morning who gets it. He's been there. And so I think that through that, you'll find in David a person that you can relate to. You'll find in David a character in the Bible that you'll be thankful God included. Because he seems to have had some experiences that we can look at and say, Wow, there's a guy that if I were able to talk with him today, we would have a good conversation. He seems to have experienced some similar things that I may be going through. I want you to turn with me in the book of 1 Samuel. And I want you to look in chapter 22, 1 Samuel chapter 22. Now, while you're turning there, let me catch you up to speed real quick on where we've been. If you are a guest with us this morning, or if you've not been able to be with us for a week or two, let me kind of catch you up to speed. We are in a series where we're looking at at great biblical lives, true, real characters from the Scripture, and what can we learn from them what did their lives uh, entail? What, what experiences did they have? What did God do in their lives? How did God work with them? What lessons can we learn, both for practical living and for our understanding of God? And so we've come to now to the third part of, of our study on the life of a man named David, who dominates much of Scripture, uh, both by uh, his explicit mention and then just by implication as his family line, earthly family line, plays out. But we see David as as an incredible figure. In fact, God described David uh, two times in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. He was a person whose heart was set on the things that God's heart was set on. Was he perfect? No. None of us are. Uh, If you're expecting perfection here at Elm Grove, uh, then you can consider this my last Sunday because I will no longer uh, be able to serve you uh, because I'm imperfect. However, if you're okay with imperfection, then you're welcome to come back, and I'll assume that I am as well, all right? So hopefully the building won't be empty next week, full of all the perfect people that we have here in Callaway County. But David, not perfect, just like any of us. But a man who God said was after God's own heart. There was something about him that God said, that's my man. That's, that's the example. Now, we we pick up David's story Chronologically, before where we left off last week, but I think this highlights some of the reasons why David is such a great example for us. I want to, to show you, and this is what we'll kind of look at sort of the end of our story today before we get to the beginning of it. Look in 1 Samuel chapter 22. Look at, at verse 1, just the very first part. So David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. Here he is in a cave. We pick this up in 1 Samuel chapter 22. David is in a cave. Now, if you know anything about the life of David, you know that this is probably the last place that he would have ever figured he would be. David was anointed as king as a young teenager, was to take over when King Saul died. He was an incredible young man, a man of great success, a man of great influence. Someone, as I just described, God was even saying, this is a man after my own heart. And yet, here he winds up in a cave. Now, before you think this is Mammoth Cave, a place you would pay to see, if you've been to Mammoth Cave, you know what, a, what an incredible experience that is to walk through all those, those caves, and, and you, you pay money to go in there, and they give tours. They're not exactly the kind of cave that David finds himself in. In fact, most often during biblical times, caves were, were used as burial sites. Uh, they, were, they were tombs. And so I don't know if this particular cave was one of those, but it certainly carries with it the symbolism of death. It's a place where you wouldn't want to be. You wouldn't choose just to go and hang out in this particular cave. Not where you're going to get your friends together on Friday night and have a good time. That's not where you're going to be. So this cave during this time would symbolize the death and defeat, the very bottom where David finds himself. It's no, uh, as in my my children, of course, uh, are, are into... Different movies and so on. Recently, we watched Aladdin, and if you know anything about Aladdin, they have this mythical cave of wonders that takes you know that the genie finds himself in or wherever. This is no mythical cave of wonders that David is in. It's it's far from that. And for David, this really, as we'll see as we roll through this sermon, this was the end of the line for him. This was the very bottom. This was his last straw. This was this was it. It was the culmination of a a series of very depressing events that David had gone through. And you may today, I don't know, find yourself right there. Sort of at the end of a series of culmination, a a culmination of, of, of depressing events. Of things that just shouldn't have happened, you didn't expect were going to happen, and there you are. You may just be coming out of that particular cave. Uh... And I've heard it said, you, you may either be coming out of that cave, in that cave, or maybe about to go into that cave. I don't know where you are, but David can relate. We'll see in a minute, Psalm chapter 142 really tells how David was feeling at this time. Here's a man who had been hunted by King Saul. A person whom he had served faithfully, had served without any selfishness whatsoever. He'd remained innocent through the whole time. And this enemy with great power hunted him down. And as we'll see as we move through this, David here is in this cave without any of the crutches that had supported him in the past. And so what was it like there for him? You don't you hold your place in 1 Samuel and, and then grab a place over in Psalms. We're going to look at, uh, at both of these because David is writing as he's experiencing all this stuff. Psalm chapter 142, toward the end of the book of Psalms. David, it's believed, is, is writing during his time in the cave, and he, and he writes these words in Psalm 142. I cry aloud to the Lord. I plead aloud for the, to the Lord for, for mercy. I pour out my complaint before Him. I reveal my trouble to Him. Although my spirit is weak within me, you know my way, talking about the Lord. Along this path I travel, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. No one stands up for me. There is no refuge for me. No one cares about me. I cry to you, Lord. I say you are my shelter, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am very weak. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Free me from prison so that I can praise your name. The righteous will gather around me because you deal generously with me. Listen to those words. Look to the right and see. No one stands up for me. There is no refuge for me. No one cares about me. David in this cave is experiencing great despair. And a tremendous amount of loneliness. Here in this cave, all he faces is despair and loneliness. No one cares about me, he says. I'm all alone and I'm crying out to the Lord hoping that He'll hear me and do something about my situation. He gets to the point where all of his dreams have gone up in smoke and he's left with nothing but confusion. Nothing but hopelessness. Nothing but anxiety about the future. Here he is in a very desperate and lonely position all by himself. No one around him who understands. No one who gets it. You think of the losses that we endure that cause despair and loneliness for us. Some of us have faced those, and as I think back on my short time here at Elm Grove, I've seen so many in our church go through tremendous loss. Whether it's the loss of good health, and it causes anxiety and despair and potentially loneliness in you, feeling as if no one is around you, no one gets it. Maybe you've lost family. Whether that's through death or or maybe through divorce, or just through distance, or, or, or just separation, whatever it may be. Through hard times, you've experienced that loss. Maybe you've lost friends. I've done probably, I think, 10 or 11 funerals since I've been here. Many of those folks were either family members of those of you sitting here, or close friends you've known for a long time. Maybe some of you have relocated, or you've had friends relocate, and, and you've experienced the loss that comes with that. A little bit of despair and loneliness. Maybe you've lost a job. In our recent, obviously, economic downturn over the last several years, many, many in America, and I'm sure many here, have been directly affected by the loss of occupation, the loss of a job. Something you didn't anticipate, something you were going to be in until you retired was then taken from you. Maybe you've experienced the loss of a reputation, and you didn't do anything wrong. You weren't the culprit, and yet now your reputation is soured. People now speak poorly of you because of something that happened that was beyond your control. Others may have lost opportunities or dreams. The things you thought were going to be in your life are now no longer possible. And as a result, you find yourself in that cave full of despair, full of loneliness. And maybe not you this morning, but maybe someone you know. And so before you write it off and say, well, I'm not really there this morning, consider what God may have to do through you for someone else as you listen to how David endured all of this. David wound up in this cave, but before that, he experienced a series of events that were were all very similar. Every crutch that he had leaned on in his life was removed from him, and we'll see those. The first beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 19. So if you've got your place in 1 Samuel, turn back a page or two. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 19. Look at verse 9. Here's his first crutch removed. Now an evil spirit from the Lord came on on Saul as he was sitting in his palace holding a spear. David was playing the harp, and Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear. As the spear struck the wall, David eluded Saul and escaped. That night, he ran away. David's first crutch to be kicked out from under him was his position. Here he was, a successful military man, a man who was in the king's court, a man of of worth, a man of value, a successful man, a man of great position. And his crutch of position was kicked from under him in a split second. He had done his job well. He had been nothing but good for the king. He had been nothing but good for his country, and yet he's forced out, and he's spoken badly of after his departure. I don't know if you've experienced that or not. Unfortunately, I have to admit to you that, that I have, and I know what difficulties arise from that. Because with David's position, he also lost his source of income, his future advancement, his respect from others, his reputation, all of that in a split second, was taken from Him. Maybe you've experienced some of the same thing. The loss of your position or your job. And it takes so much from you. And fellas, I don't know about you in particular. I can only speak as a man. And ladies, I I, I won't even imagine to, to understand all that there is to understand about women. So I'll just speak to the guys for just a second. How about that? The guys in particular, I know what it means when your job is gone. It takes with you not only your feeling of providing for your family, but your identity is wrapped up in that. And whether you've lost it by force or you retired or you resigned or whatever happened, you experience the loss of that and it hurts. And though you may never admit it, it can cause that feeling of being in the cave, that despair, that loneliness. It can affect everything in your life. It can cause you great confusion and great anxiety over what's going to happen next. And ladies, if you've experienced the same thing and you've worked so hard to get to where you are, and all of a sudden things begin to fall apart vocationally, you lose that position. It can cause tremendous problems for any individual and certainly any family. David's first crutch to be kicked out was his position. And that would be enough. Some of you have experienced the loss of position. That, that would be enough, really, to break a person in many cases. That's not where the story ends for David. Because in the next couple of verses, we have another crutch that's kicked out from under him. In verse 11, Saul sent agents to David's house to watch for him and kill him in the morning. But his wife, Michael, warned David, if you don't escape tonight, you'll be dead tomorrow. So she lowered David from the window, and he fled. And escaped. This next crutch, after he loses his position, he loses his family. His wife at this point is a supporter of him. Now we looked a couple of weeks ago at how she turns on him. So he really ultimately does lose his family and its support. But at first she's supportive of him, and yet even that is taken from him. Even the supportive family is gone. His wife, whom he counted on for support, was no longer going to be there for him as he had to run away and leave her behind. And as I mentioned, as it would play out, she wasn't really on his side in the long run anyway, but at least at this point, he thought she was. They weren't really on bad terms until later on, but he wouldn't have her support as he had to run from her father the king. The loss of family, obviously, is a huge, huge deal, especially when it's not the only thing taken, when it's accompanied by other things. David had just lost his position. Now he loses his family, and for some here, you've experienced the loss of family maybe through divorce, the tragedy that that is. What you experienced and you dreamed about and you hoped for was ripped apart. And you experienced the loss of family. And maybe you say, well, I'm glad it happened. But somewhere in you, there's a hurt because it rips you apart. And it's a loss. Others, as I mentioned, have dealt with the loss of family through death. And it doesn't matter how old a person is, it is still a valuable Human life that's taken at the moment of death. And it hurts. And it's a loss. Some of you have experienced the loss of family through a relocation. Nancy and I, four, four years ago, I guess it was, moved from Louisville where my family was. And since then, obviously, we've experienced the loss of family. Part of the deal. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe your kids have grown up. And you've experienced the loss of family. And you say to a guy like me who's got four young children, you just wait. You just wait. I listen, I, I hope the days go slowly. I hope they go very, very slowly, because I know it's coming. And I'm not going to be ready for it. And then you're going to look at me one of these days and say, I told you so. And I'll say, Well, you're right. I wasn't ready. But it hurts even when the natural course of life is the reason that you lose your family, they grow up and they get married and they move away and they become independent, it still is a loss. Maybe you've experienced the loss of family through your children running from God. And you so desperately want them to be close to the Lord. You so desperately want to see them saved. Or to return to the Lord from their wandering path. And there's that loss of family for you because... Because that's what you want to have in common with your children, and yet it's not there. Others have experienced the loss of family through a debilitating disease that, over a period of time, takes away the person that you once knew. Through Alzheimer's or other debilitating types of diseases, you you may still physically have that person, but they're not the same anymore. And it's a tremendous loss. Losing family is obviously difficult to deal with. It causes great pain and it has long-term effects. Probably for as long as you live. It's a crutch that was kicked out from under David. Something that had supported him. Something he had leaned on and counted on was now taken. His position was taken. His family was taken. And then we see in First Samuel chapter 19, beginning in verse 18, you see he says uh, the, the Scripture says here, David fled and escaped and went to... Whom? Samuel. You know who Samuel is for David? Samuel is his mentor. Samuel is his, his leader. Samuel's the guy that he always looked up to. It says as, as we move through that particular Scripture, David spent some time with Samuel, but, but he couldn't stay there. And eventually he has to leave. And there's, there's not a lot of evidence that they spent any more time together. Here's this mentor that David has. This guy that he had looked up to since he was anointed king by the prophet Samuel at an early age, and he's gone. We've all had people that we look up to, those spiritual leaders in our lives. Maybe it was a a youth pastor, or a pastor, or a Sunday school teacher, or a a grandparent, or just a friend, or whomever it was for you. And I would guarantee you that if you're at any point of spiritual maturity today, you've had someone who, who was leading you down that path to help you to get to where you are. So we've all had those folks who are taken from us through death or distance, just moving away or something else, and it's a very difficult time. You see the dominoes that are falling here in David's life, the crutches that are being removed. His, his position is gone. His family is then taken. Then he goes to his mentor to say, can you help me? And, and he has to leave him as well. Now, I have to admit to you that as I read the story of David, I think, all right, God, it's about time for you to step in and do something. It's about time, Lord. He's been in the cave. What are you going to do? And I ask myself, what would I be doing at this point if I'm David? If I've lost my position, if I've lost my family, if I've lost my my leaders, my mentors, Where where would I turn next? Well, David next turns to his friend Jonathan. And throughout the entire chapter of 1 Samuel chapter 20, I'll not take the time this morning to read all of that to you. But David goes to Jonathan, who actually was the the son of King Saul, but was David's close friend. He was a guy that when they began to talk, they just picked up the conversation where it left off the last time. You have friends like that? And he just got it. He understood David. David didn't have to catch him up to speed, didn't have to to help him understand. Jonathan just got it. He and David saw the world the same way, and because of that, they found a deep and lasting friendship, despite all the drama that was going on around them. And we get a glimpse in this passage of their relationship and the close friendship they had. And in verses 11 through 17 and 27 to 29, and then at the very end of the chapter, they reiterate to one another the covenant that they have. That they will always protect each other's families. That they will never turn their backs on each other. That they'll put their lives on the line if that's what it takes. They'll protect each other. And Jonathan does that in this particular chapter, covering for David, protecting him, putting his life on the line. And if you're human, that's the kind of friends you want. That's the kind of friends I want. But aren't they rare to find those kinds of friends? If you were to count, you probably wouldn't get to the end of one hand how many friends you have that are really like that? Outside of my marriage, I have two that are like that. I don't know what your number would be, but I would venture to say that if you've got more than five, man, you're really doing good. <laughs> David was Jonathan's friend like that, and Jonathan was, was David's friend. and Yet in the end, Jonathan is unable to go with David. And they never saw each other again. Jonathan would be killed in battle. David would go on to become king. And so it's after the loss of his position, after the loss of his family, after the loss of his mentor, that David loses his one and only close friend. He loses his friend. And now he would be all alone on his journey. And you say, well, you know, good grief, that's that's got to be enough. Surely that that's it. Finally, in chapter 21, if you turn there, Look in verse 10, and we'll see what the final crutch is that David loses. Chapter 21, verse 10. David fled that day from Saul's presence and went to King Achish of Gath. The Achish's servants said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? Don't they sing about him during their dances? Saul has killed thousands, but David, is tens of thousands? David took this to heart and became very afraid of, of King Achish of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. He acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Look, you can see the man is crazy, Akish said to his servants. Why did you bring him to me? This is a great line here in the scripture. Do I have such a shortage of crazy people that you brought this one to act crazy around me? Imagine that kind of kingdom. Is this one going to come into my house? David David here finally loses his self-respect. Here is the future king of Israel, acting like a crazy person in the presence of Israel's greatest enemies, the Philistines, at a point of desperation, seeking asylum amongst this great enemy. Here he is, forced to this point of begging, becoming the object of insults and ridicule by his enemies. Here's the final straw for David. He's got nothing left. Nothing was working for him, so in verse 1 of chapter 22, the very next verse, so David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. Nothing left. His position's gone. His family's gone. His mentor is gone. His friends are all gone. And finally, his self-respect is gone maybe you, like David, have had all the crutches kicked out from under you. All the things that you've leaned on, all the things that have supported you. And keep in mind that nothing that David was leaning on was inherently bad. We don't need to criticize him. We just need to understand here's a man who, just like us, had these things in his life that typically support a person, and they're all gone. I tell you, if I'm David, I'd feel like running and hiding in a cave, too. I would have looked for the nearest hole in the ground to jump in and cover myself up and not come back out. What a point of despair and loneliness that he faced. Maybe you, like David, have felt the same way. All the crutches kicked out from under you. And you find yourself alone in a cave without any of the crutches that you've ever had. David did something that I think should become a guiding principle for us. When he was in that cave, All alone, without crutches. That's when he learned to lean on God alone. And so I would challenge and encourage you. If you find yourself there, apply this principle. Lean on God alone. When you do find yourself there, and unfortunately I can say, based upon the authority of God's Word and on life in general, you will likely find yourself there at some point if you've not already. Learn to lean on God alone. But I I tell you, there's more than leaning on God alone for David than just some positive thinking. Isn't that fun when somebody tells you, look, just hang in there. Just suck it up. It'll be okay. That's no good. We learn from David what it really meant to lean on God alone. The first thing he did was to hurt. The first thing he did in that cave when he's all alone without his crutches was to hurt. Remember Psalm 142? There's, there's no one who cares about me. God, what's going on? He's hurting deeply. Unfortunately, I think in many churches and in many circles of Christianity, we have this notion that if you're hurting, then somehow you're not saved. That if you're hurting, then somehow you're not a strong believer in Jesus Christ. That if, that if you really admit, you know what? This stinks. I don't like this. I wish things were different. Then somehow you're not spiritually mature. Some of the most spiritually mature people we see throughout the Scripture hurt very deeply. They hurt very deeply. David experienced real hurt. So do we. But in his hurt, he didn't miss what he could learn from God through it. And in the midst of your hurt, be sure to learn what God is teaching you. In Psalm chapter 56, David writes about what he's learning through the process of being with the Philistines and so on. He says, Be gracious to me, God, for man tramples me. He fights and oppresses me all day long. My adversaries trample me all day, for many arrogantly fight against me. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I will not fear what can man do to me. They twist my words all day long. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps while they wait to take my life. Will they escape in spite of such sin? God, bring down the nations in wrath. You yourself have recorded my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your records? Then my enemies will retreat on the day when I call. This I know. God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not fear. What can man do to me? David, in the midst of his hurt, in the midst of his pain, he learns that it's through those times when God teaches humility, when God teaches perspective, when God teaches wisdom and patience and endurance, when God teaches us about His character and about His desire for us, when God teaches us to trust in Him. Yes, it hurts. But there's also great lessons to learn. Not only did David learned that, but he also was taught to wait on the Lord. The very next Psalm, in Psalm chapter 57, David describes it this way, be gracious to me, God, be gracious to me, for I take refuge in you. I will seek refuge in the shadow of your wings until danger passes. He learned to wait on God. Now that's no fun, I have to tell you. You ever waited on God? You ever said, God, all right. It doesn't seem as if your timing is to move me past this particular stage of my life. So I have no option but to wait. It's not often very fun. Because the circumstances remain. The hurt is still there. The lessons are still being learned. But David learned to wait. To take refuge in the Lord. To trust Him in the midst of all of His troubles. God ultimately was doing more than David could see with his own physical eyes. Eventually, the Lord would bring to David his family. He would bring to him some followers, some men that David could lead, and he would make him the greatest king that Israel ever knew. And in spite of all that pain, that's what God was doing. But David had to wait in the shadow of your wings until danger passed. I think we must follow his example not only to hurt, to learn, to wait, but also to submit to the Lord. I find it interesting to note, if you still have your Bible, open to 1 Samuel chapter 22. Here he is in the cave in verse 1. At the end of verse 1, it says this, When David's brothers and his father's whole family heard, they went down and joined him there. In addition, listen to this list of people that God brings to David. Every man who was desperate, in debt, or discontented rallied around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. He's got 400 guys who were desperate, in debt, and discontented. Now, that sounds like a great group to lead, doesn't it? Oh, my goodness. Well, David, who do you want around you? Well, Lord, I tell you what. If you can just send me all the people, at least 400 of them would be good. All the people who are just desperate in life. They're just down and out. God, I just that's who I want. Lord, they've got nothing good to say. I, you know, that's who I want. They're, they're down in the mouth all the time. They are nothing but negative. Lord, if you don't mind to surround me with those kinds of people, I, that would really help me in my my, de- my my despair and my loneliness. I just, that's that's what I want. And God, if it's not too much trouble, could you add in all those people that are in debt? Because I have unlimited resources, Lord. I You know, I, I've lost my position, but hey, God's going to provide. Here we go. Let's get all the people that are in debt. <laughs> and then, Lord, you know, in the end, if, if just toss on a little bit, of, you know, icing on the cake, all those who are discontented. That would really help. I just really need some rotten attitudes. You know, just can you, you know, can, think about this. Here's David in this cave full of despair and loneliness, wondering what God is going to do. He's hurting. He's doing all he can to learn from the Lord. He's he's waiting on God, and God sends him these people. David's supposed to be the king. He's not supposed to lead these guys. But David, it says, became what? Their leader. He submitted to what God wanted to do in that particular moment in his life. I really believe that that's the trigger on David's side. that began David's ascent to where God wanted him to be. When he simply said, you know what, Lord, this isn't the path I would choose. These aren't the people I would choose to have around me. I wouldn't want 400 people like that. But God, if this is the path that you are choosing then all I know to do is to submit and say, okay, yes, it hurts. Yes, I have lessons to learn. Yes, I'm still waiting, but God, I will submit. As a future king, these were certainly people who were going to be below him, so to speak. But David submitted to the Lord's redirection of his life. And i tell you this, from my own experience and from what the Scripture says, the more you fight what God is doing, the longer you will spend in despair and loneliness. The more you fight what God is doing in your life, the longer you will spend in despair and loneliness. Then finally, David shows us, I really believe, that that this leaning on God alone is not just something we do that's passive. We just talk about it. I, I really believe that like Him, we must get to work. David, it says, became their leader. That means he trained them. That means he got busy doing the things that a leader would do in the lives of these kinds of people. David got to work in that cave in the middle of his despair and loneliness. He began to say, all right, God, I'm going to do all that I can, all that I'm responsible for right now. Did David work his way out of all this? That's not my point. But David said, I'm just going to do what I know God would have me do. I've submitted to him. He's redirected my life, and so here we go. I'm going to do all I can for the Lord's glory where He has me. He trained these men. He led them. He knew for them that was what was needed for the road ahead. He got to work. He didn't just sit and stew on it, though he was hurting. He learned the lessons and began to apply them in his life. He waited on God, but in the meantime, he did what he knew God wanted him to do. And as he submitted to God, he simply got to work on the things that God had put right in front of him. The truth is this morning, that some of us here have had every crutch removed. And they may be exactly the things that David had removed. Or maybe they're a little bit different. Maybe you've had your position, your family, your leaders, your mentor, your, your friends, your self-respect taken from you. Or maybe it's something else or a combination of those things. And you know the despair and the loneliness comes from that. All of us will eventually face, if not all, many of those things. How will you respond? What do you lean on when nothing is there to lean on? I really believe that's why so many people in our world crumble and grasp at anything they can get their hands on that seemingly supports them. And we miss the great point of Scripture That leaning on God alone is not something that is a crutch, but it's the foundation. It's the absolute and perfect support for our lives. So how will you respond? Will you hurt? Absolutely. Will you learn? Boy, I hope so. Will you wait on God till the storm passes? Will you submit to Him? Will you work in the meantime on whatever God has given you to do? That's the path of freedom in the midst of the cave. Now, ultimately, all of us, every one of us in this room, everyone who will listen to the recording of this sermon for however long it lasts, all of us will ultimately stand before the Lord with no crutches. Our position, our family, our mentors, our friends, our self-respect won't matter when we stand before the Lord. Not a single bit of it will matter. The only thing in that day when you and I die and we stand before the Lord, the only thing that will matter when we face the Lord is whether or not we receive God's gift of salvation and forgiveness by trusting in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. If you can make all the money in the world you want. And Jesus says, what good is it if you gain the whole world and yet you forfeit your very soul? Nothing will matter in that day except what you did here on earth with Jesus Christ. He loves you. He died for you. He is the only path to eternal life. Jesus is not a crutch. He is the foundation of all that exists, the Bible says. And He is the only path to eternal life. So my prayer for you this morning, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've already made that decision to turn your life over to Him and receive His free gift of salvation. But in the cave, without crutches, you'll lean on God alone. And if you've not yet made that decision, That you'll understand your situation apart from Jesus Christ. It's not just bad. It's hopeless. It's not just negative. It's eternal. And I hope that you'll see Jesus not as a crutch, but as the absolute foundation for life that He says He is. And the only path to eternal life with God forever. He is the only way, the Bible says. And that way is by God's grace through our faith giving our lives to Him receiving His gift of grace and salvation. That's my prayer for you this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? As we round to a close this morning I simply ask you what does your response to the Lord today need to be? What is God saying to you? Have all the crutches been removed? Are you in a cave? Do you see how maybe one has been taken and another might soon fall? Do you see yourself heading toward that cave of despair and loneliness? What will you do in those moments? Will you hurt and say, God, this is, this is terrible. But will you learn? Will you wait? Will you submit? Will you get to work on God what God wants for you? Maybe this morning your response is simply, God, I, I, just, I need to hurt before you. Or God, teach me. Or God, I trust you. Or, Lord, I submit to you. Or, God, I'm tired of just wallowing in my pain. Lord, I'm I'm just going to do this week what I know I should do. And I'll trust you in the meantime. Or maybe God is speaking to your heart today about receiving His free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. And you'd simply say, yes, I trust you. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you died for me and you're the only way. The only way that I can get to heaven. I place my faith in You. Don't leave this morning without responding the way that God wants you to respond this morning. Lord Jesus, thank You that You are the foundation of all that exists. The only way to eternal life. That we can lean on You alone. And when we do, we are not weak. We are made strong through that because of Your great strength. Lord, I pray for those who are in a cave without any crutches. Sustain them, Lord. Teach them. Help them to submit. Thank You for always being faithful, even when when that's where we are. Lord, for those who desperately need You, and I pray they wouldn't get away today without receiving Your grace through faith in Jesus Christ